Hello, and welcome to One Stop Co-op Shop, your one stop for board game news and reviews. This week, game designers Peter Gusis and Michael Kelly will review a cooperative game and have a related design discussion. Hi, I'm Peter, and I'm here with Mike. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the One Stop Co-op Shop. And this week, we got a special treat for you, a premium game from Chip Theory Games called Cloudspire. Yes, we are actually not doing a top 10 list or a best of list. That might be the first one after three or four in a row. I should put the special episode like header in the front of this because now this is a special episode, the normal ones. <laughs> That's right. We're going to go to a top 10 list every week. Yes, I think we would run out of them pretty quickly considering we only cover co-ops. <laughs> so yeah, we are going to be talking about Cloudspire today. And then our design discussion will be focused on games like Cloudspire and the idea of having games that can be played competitively, solo, and cooperatively. Sort of the trifecta of good or maybe not so good depending on the game. All right, but before we get into that, who do we need to thank this week? Oh, we got at the top of our list, Colin Degnan. So thank you, Colin. Even though you work with us, you're also supporting us on the Patreon. So thank you so much, buddy. And then also James Baker and William Payne. So thank you, Colin, James, and William. Thank you to all our Patreon supporters and everyone who uh, watches on the YouTube, listens to the podcast, and even just uh, gives us a review on Apple or SoundCloud or wherever you listen. We really appreciate your support, your engagement, uh, everyone on our Slack talking through stuff. All of you make our one-stop co-op shop what it is. So thank you. Hey, special shout-out this week, too. Colin sent an email today. <laughs> oh, yeah? This, this phantom email that happens to uh, crop up every once in a while? Well, it crops up when his name crops up, because that's the only time I remember he's still supporting us, so. <laughs> he said, keep up the good work, guys. I couldn't do it better myself. I, I bet he did. I bet he did. Well, thanks, Callan. Yes, well, although he did do it better himself, and then he left us. Well, he, he didn't leave us. He's still doing videos on the channel and popping up on the podcast every once in a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just meant, you know, he's not with us in this plane anymore, the podcast plane. Oh, God. I thought you were saying he was dead or something. This is terrible. No, no, no. He's definitely alive and uh, doing well last time I talked to him. Oh, I just got another email from him. He said, I'm not dead, guys. Keep up the good work. <laughs> God, could he, like, listen to us in real time through some kind of Colin magic? I mean, the guy is magical. What can I say? <laughs> All right. Well, goofy humor aside, let's get to our review of Cloudspire. And speaking of magic... I usually handle the thematic part of things, so I will let you know a little bit about it. This world that they've created is up in the clouds, hence Cloudspire, in a world called Ankar. There are these separate island states that make up Ankar, and it they are kept separate by something called the Source. The Source is like this source of magic. And what's going on is, I guess the source is fading a little bit, and so the islands are starting to kind of crash together. And so you have all these factions that have been kept separately, and apparently they don't know how to play very well with each other, because all they do is create units to go out and battle and fight with each other. And what are they fighting over? This very mystical source that we've been talking about the whole time. So it's kind of a neat world that they've created, and unique from anything else we've seen. Does the source uh, bind all people together? Does it give you the power to move things with your mind? It's not the force. It's the source. <laughs> They're so similar. No chlorines here. <laughs> so in terms of the mechanics, I'll give a very brief overview because there's a lot going on in this game. 
But this is a bit of a MOBA. If you don't know what a MOBA is, that's these games where these mobs are kind of moving toward the enemy base while heroes run around and do heroic things. It's also got a bit of tower defense in there as well. But the basic idea of the game is each faction will prepare a certain number of units based on the number of command points they have. They'll also uh, build spires using source, as Peter already mentioned. Spires are towers that can shoot the enemy units that are approaching. And you'll have these minions that will just actively have to work their way toward, down these paths, the enemy base. Whereas you have heroes that can move pretty freely. And basically, you move your units, they get shot by any spires they're in range of, they get to attack, you go back and forth with those kind of turns. And generally speaking, in a normal scenario, the first person to destroy the other person's base will win, or uh, the person who is doing the best in terms of base health after you go through a certain number of waves. But the key thing we'll be talking about here is the co-op and solo play, which is scenario-based. You might have different objectives or a series of objectives to fulfill, and there you'll have an AI that follows a pretty basic AI script, especially for the minions, but spawns very specific things each wave. So that's the basics of it. Uh, combat is only dice-based for the spires. Everything else just does a set amount of damage. You have all these keywords, all the units. Uh, you can buy stuff from the market. There's a lot going on. But in general, it's tactically moving units toward the enemy base and trying to blow up uh, theirs before they can blow up yours. All right. That's a very good description. And it's there's a lot going on. So Yeah, I was going to say, like I left out <laughs> 20 different key things, but hopefully that gives you a little bit of a feel for the game. Well, don't worry. Every time I play, I leave out about 20 key things also. So Hey, hey, hey let's not get to the review too quickly. Except <laughs> I guess now it's time to get to the review, so <laughs> let's do that. What's going on here? I'm confused. All right, so if you have not listened to the podcast before, welcome and thanks for being here. The format of how we do things, we're going to talk about the five elements of the game that stood out the most to us, the five design decisions, the five mechanics, what have you, and we're going to count down from the number five, which is the least important of the five, but of course still quite important to the game, all the way to our number one, and then we'll end with some final thoughts on the game before we, as mentioned, get to our design discussion. All right, well, I'll start us off this week. And my number five is a pretty big con for the game, and that is the setup. And it's not as bad in competitive play, but in cooperative play, you are expected to lay out the map in a certain way. And these tiles are all made of neoprene, so they're very, very nice. But they're not labeled at all. So in the beginning of the campaign book, it says, this is number one and this is number two. But nowhere on the neoprene map tiles does it tell you. So you kind of have to figure out which tile is which. And it gets even more confusing when you have overlays on top of it. So I don't know. The whole setup process takes quite a while. And then if you don't have it aimed the right way on your table to make it fit because it takes up quite a bit of space, then you got to like reconfigure everything and just turning it like 10 degrees changes the whole layout of the map on your table and again because they're not tiles they're neoprene it takes some time to kind of maneuver them around so i don't know i don't know if you found this nearly as frustrating as i did but i wish they had numbered the map tiles it wouldn't be hard every other game has done this they even numbered them in the book they could have easily numbered them so you knew exactly what you were trying to find and which orientation to put it in. I don't know. I just found that very frustrating. It shouldn't take me a half an hour to set up for a game. Not only that, but all your chips, you're going to get them in these normal like chip poker trays. And then they have really cool trays to hold your chips as you're playing the game. And they, they do a very good job. You have six different types of units and they have their own spot in the holder. You have three heroes. They have their own spot. You have four types of spires but there's only actually two different types they're just double-sided and they have their own spot 
But taking everything out of that, putting them in those trays, it just takes a little while to set it up, especially when you're going to have to do it for both sides when you're playing cooperatively. So that means you're going to be setting up four factions, two player factions and two enemy factions. So it, it takes a little while to set up, and that really bothered me. Yeah, it didn't bother me too much, those specific things. I didn't find the map uh, setting up to take very long at all. I didn't even use the numbers most of the time. I just kind of eyeballed it, and it seemed pretty easy to me. But I totally agree with you that you should have the numbers. Well, they have those little overlays. I mean, I don't know. I I didn't mind the overlays either. They were still pretty straightforward. But I I, I totally get it. I think it could have been an easy design solution to number them in some way. The chips, I, I don't feel that way at all. I think it's very simple to just take them if they're... If you put them away in order, they just come right back out and you just slip them into those little holders. But my number five is still related to yours, I think, and kind of along the same lines. And that's the AI management. I called it a mix, although it, it probably lends a little bit toward uh, Khan. Because the actual AI turns are pretty quick in a basic way. But especially, like you said, when you're playing co-op and, uh, you know, when I played co-op, I was still generally kind of running the AI. It's not like each of us pick a faction, but I guess if you had a experienced player playing with you, that would work out easier. But yeah, having to, like, move all of their units, and they often have quite a lot, can be a little bit of a chore. And uh, the bigger thing for me in terms of setup was not the setup of the map tiles or getting the chips in place. The biggest thing for me was after I picked, like, what my armies were doing, I had to look in the uh, campaign booklet, and they tell you what units are being used by the enemy in each wave. So having to set up, like, my own waves and their waves and doing it over and over again, whereas, you know, the map tiles, you just set up one time and you're good to go for that entire scenario. But having to dig out, like, just tons of enemies with tons of health chips for each wave wasn't a huge issue because, again, I think the AI turns actually flow very smoothly. But it definitely, like you were saying, kind of having to manage both yourself and all these enemies and all of them having so many chips, it can definitely be a little bit of a chore. Only enough to be my number five, but it certainly stood out to me, too. Well, yeah, and that was part of the setup as well. I had a feeling you were going to touch on that. If you weren't, I was going to touch on it later. Yeah, not just setting up at the beginning of the game, but then setting up each wave. And part of it is that the chips are double-sided, and one side has a star on it, which is like the upgraded side typically, and one side doesn't have a star. So you just have to make sure those are all faced the right way. And some of the factions, they're not exactly that way. They're not upgraded sides. So sometimes you have to look on both sides of a chip to figure out where some of the units are for certain factions. So it just took a little longer than I wanted. But again, as with you, it's my number five. So not the most important thing, but certainly people who don't like doing that stuff, I think will be bothered by it. And I think this is a game like, I mean, like a lot of dungeon crawlers or any game that has a lot of stuff going on. If you're going to leave it set up on your table and play several times in a row, it won't seem that bad. But if you're playing once and then putting it away and then playing once the next day and putting it away, it could (laughs) definitely become a chore. Oh, absolutely. All right. So my number four is the market. There are actually two different resources in the game. The source that you're fighting over, you typically get by killing these little creep chips on the board. You also get source from destroying enemy figures. And source is a resource you're going to spend buying things in this market step that isn't what you use to pay for your units, but it is what you use to pay for your spires. It is what you use to buy these things from the market. And there are several different things you can buy. And it's kind of an interesting step because everybody's got their own army, But these kind of let you break outside of your army and get special units that you wouldn't normally be able to get. And so you might be able to get better spires than your faction normally gets. Or you might be able to get better champions or even better minions. And you buy them using source, not command points. So you could actually get 
an advantage or a disadvantage in the wave based on whatever you buy from the market. The other thing you can buy are these overlays, which are these little three hex tiles that can overlay the normal board and they let you do some cool things, which I'm about to talk about in my number three. It doesn't take too long because you're only allowed to buy one thing from the market. It's a neat step that in addition to buying stuff, you also get to use your source for some other things. Yeah, it's funny when we do these lists, Peter, because uh, if you haven't heard this on the podcast before, Peter and I have been sort of striving actively to play the game separately so we don't get into groupthink and like have the exact same experience as playing with each other. But my number five is kind of similar to your number five. My number four is very similar to your number four, except I uh, focused a little bit differently. I focused on the source management in general, not just the market phase. But this is a big pro for me. I really like uh, resource management overall in games, and I think this is a nice one. As Peter mentioned, you can spend your source to hire more units or more leaders or more spires to kind of change up the makeup of your force. You can uh, change the makeup of the battlefield. I think you're about to talk about that, so I won't go any deeper into it than that. But uh, the big one for me is, and you didn't mention this one yet, you can spend source to upgrade your base and get these very unique upgrades by each faction that can drastically change the things that are available to you, make things uh, cost less, give you steady income, give you special powers or attacks, like lots of cool things. Or you can upgrade your spires, which will often be a more immediate bang for your buck, like actually destroy the enemies attacking you, whereas the base often feels more like kind of a long-term investment. So I love that, just kind of the tension between, do I hire some units with the source? Do I make my spires stronger and improve my defense? Do I upgrade for the long game? Uh, That's really cool cool and I never feel like there's an obvious thing like there are some upgrades that maybe seem a little bit better I tend to maybe buy one before another one with certain factions but depending on the scenario I can definitely go different ways so a big one for me related to yours the source management in general is my number four well there might have been a reason I didn't talk about the faction upgrades at this point so oh, okay we'll just, <laughs> we'll just leave it at that well, yeah and they kind of come up for me a second time but yeah we'll we'll wait for now So for my number three, I'll talk about the towers themselves. And this is a big part of the game. And you don't realize it when you first come in. I mean, I guess you should, because it's kind of a tower defense game. But the towers are kind of a pain in the butt. And you're really fighting over these source wells. So the only place you're allowed to build towers, at the beginning of the game at least, is on these source wells. And there are one to two per big tile. And so you really are fighting over them because you're not allowed to build a spire unless you are controlling an adjacent tile, which means you have a spire on that tile as well. So at the beginning, you can only build them right by your base, but quickly you're going to realize you want to build them by your base so you can build them further out, so you can build them further out, so you can really give the enemies minions that are running in and even their heroes, a hard time as they're running towards you. And the way the towers work is, and I think this is really ingenious, you have these colored chips you put under them, and they work for upgrades for both your heroes and for the towers themselves, but I'll just talk about them in towers now. There are three different chips. There are orange ones, which gives you plus attack, means you roll one dice per orange chip underneath. There are green ones, which increase the range of the tower, so normally you can only attack adjacent, but as you add more green ones, you can attack further. And the third one are these yellow ones, which don't do anything special, except they require two hits to defeat, And a lot of the low-level minions only do one hit, so you can't even remove that lowest chip unless you have a higher-powered enemy. And so for co-op, this works really good because you can see the enemy AI coming, you know what their AI is, and so you can decide when to put these yellow chips on the bottom to really help beef these towers up so some of the range guys who would normally just start destroying your towers really become very ineffective. 
So especially for the co-op game, I really like how this works. Now in the competitive game, I'm going to get into that a little bit here. When you buy the overlays, they also have a source well on them, which normally you'd only be able to have those one or two per tile, but this gives you a chance to put a third source well on a tile. And as soon as you lay that overlay down, you also get to add a tower to it immediately. So I like the tactical things that the towers provide for the game. And I really like how you can upgrade them. I love the way the upgrades work. It's just a neat, pretty straightforward system. Although, as we get into later, not everything's straightforward about it. Yeah, I really like the the spires as well and uh, kind of the defensive nature of them. And how you sort of are building bridges and expanding out and almost like a little bit of area control-ish nature. Uh, definitely good stuff. My number three is a mix and this is one that could be a deal breaker if you're buying the game for solo or co-ops because it could go con for you, it could go pro, and that's the scenarios themselves and sort of the scenario-based play. Because again, the game has a robust competitive mode, but then uh, you have to play scenarios for solo or co-op unless you want to do this solo-only sort of last-stand, survive-as-long-as-you-can mode, which is, again, only for solo play. But the scenarios are mostly the same thing each time. So uh, there's a bunch of solo ones, I think 16, and then uh, eight co-op ones that are paired up. But uh, if you play it once, you're going to see pretty much the same stuff again. Like the enemy waves that come out are identical each time. There are uh, some events that you roll for that might change up how things go. Some of them have different like setups based on a die roll. So it's not 100% equal each time. But this does lead to, I've definitely seen this uh, sentiment expressed online, the idea that a scenario can be solved or that there's like one correct way to build it. I never felt that extreme about it, so that's why it's kind of more of a mix for me than a con. There were definitely scenarios that I was like, oh, this is a really cool way to solve that. That worked really great. But it's not like I felt like that was the only way. And in some of them, I played them again, and I accomplished something very different with uh, different units, but still won. So I think it might rub people the wrong way. And the big thing is, if you only played Scenario once, and you bought the game for solo or co-op, and it is a chip theory game, so very high quality components, very pretty high price tag... Uh, if you only play each scenario once, you're probably not going to feel like you're getting your value out of the game if you're buying it just for solo and co-op. But I will say that each of the scenarios uh, has different levels of victory, basically, like three objectives you want to attain, and they can be very tough to get all three of them. So when I've played, I've generally played each scenario, I mean, a minimum of two. I don't think I ever beat any of them perfectly on my first try, but often three, four, or even five times trying to get that kind of holy grail of the full victory. So with that, I think the replay can be a lot higher, but that's going to depend a lot on your personality, whether you have sort of that completionist, I want to keep fighting the scenario until I do my best, or if you want to see something new each time, then it might run out quickly. So it could be a good, could be a bad for you. For me, it tended to lean pro, but I'm still calling it a mix. Part of that is the fiddly nature, too. So you might not play a scenario right the first time anyway. So you you may play the same scenario over and over, but until you figure out all the rules for all the special towers and everything else, there's a good chance that you won't play it right. So you could play the same scenario three times with three different sets of rules, especially early on. <laughs> I feel like there's some replayability because the first six times you play, you're probably not going to get the rules right anyway. Hey, there you go. It's, it's an all-new scenario each time. That's right. That's right. Well, I mean, because we were talking about scenario two, I'm like, I don't know how you got by all those spires and stuff. That was really hard. And you're like, oh, I just shot him from range. I'm like, but yeah, they had cover, meaning you can't attack him unless you're next to him. You're like, oops, 
didn't do that right. So <laughs> I, I feel like there's a lot of that, oops, I didn't do that right, that uh, happens in the game. Again, that's not one of my points, but it'll probably be part of my final thoughts. So just a little dig, but also uh, I do think that there is replay in the game just because I think it's going to take you a while just to figure out what you're doing correctly. So I don't think anybody is going to play eight co-op scenarios and be done with it. You know what I mean? No, <laughs> definitely not. Yeah, and certainly, even just figuring out the puzzle of how to get through it, you're not going to beat it the first time or the second time, most of the time. Maybe later on, once you get better at the game, but certainly early on, you're going to get way more than eight plays out of it, that's for sure. All right, but let's move on to my number two, and that's the Heroes and the Minions. I really like how they are very similar But at the same time, they work very differently. So minions kind of have to follow this path and they walk forward and they have to move their full movement. Now, you do have a little bit of freedom in how you move them as long as they're getting closer with each move. But heroes, you have complete freedom and complete control over. So a lot of times they feel a lot more powerful. And also heroes can upgrade throughout the course of the game. So those chips I was telling you that the towers can get, the heroes can get as well. Whenever the hero kills something, not only do you get the source for it, but you're also getting the upgrade chips under it. And then once they have their maximum number of upgrade chips, you can flip them over to their more powerful side as well. So I really like how this works. I like how the minions themselves can upgrade. But again, as with everything with this game, I feel like there's that fiddly caveat that you got to throw in because every hero, every unit, all has their own special powers. And this can be a pro or a con for somebody. It certainly makes them feel different, but at the same time, I am constantly having to look stuff up. And with co-op, it's even worse because you not only have to know what your guys can do, but you also have to know what all the enemies can do as well. So you're talking four factions that are being controlled at the same time. So if I know mine and my partner knows theirs, we still have to figure out what the other two factions can do. Like I was saying earlier, I think this is the kind of game that takes five or six times to play to even get the rules right, and this is part of it as well, because everything does something completely different, and you've got so many chips on the board at the same time, and it's like, oh, I forgot they had that special power at all. But for me, it's mostly a pro because it is fun to have unique stuff. I just wish what they would have done is a lot more repeating of powers and then maybe one other power. Instead, they have five different powers or six different powers. It doesn't seem like they want to repeat a whole lot. And so when you look at the list of powers for each faction, it's like 12 to 15. I wish they would have cut that down to like five or six and tried to make them feel unique with some of the other just basic statistics that they could have used. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, it, It didn't bother me again as much. I mean, first, I think I I might have just more of a a brain for keeping track of a bunch of fiddly stuff all at once. But also, uh, I'm kind of used to that. Like, I played a lot of Hoplomachus, which is also from Chip Theory Games, and that is the same thing where almost every unit has, like, one or two uh, little special traits going on. I do think they're repeated more in Hoplomachus, so your point still stands. But yeah, I mean, if I'm given the choice between having to take a little bit longer to learn the traits, but having way more variety between units... I'm going to generally go for the variety in a game like this, but I still think uh, you're right that a lot of people might have trouble. Uh, My number two is pretty similar to yours in some parts, but it's a full pro, and that's uh, kind of the tactical play of the game, which comes down mainly to the minions and the heroes. 
I love, love, love. One of the key things with the uh, the minions is that you can choose to space them out separately when they come out of your base or to group them. And the idea of grouping is that only the top one is moving and only the top one is vulnerable to any effects. But once they get defeated, the next one in the line gets to start acting and you can have like multiple ones. You can have your entire force grouped together and just have only one person that can be struck at a time. And I think this opens up the tactical possibilities greatly. You can have people who are guarding each other. You can uh, save like a special ability until later when you want it to pop up. And then as Peter mentioned, even though the minion movement is kind of on rails and goes along these paths, you can move suboptimally to have them reach their location at the right time, like try to get your forces to hit this one spire at the exact right time by moving intelligently. I think that's really, really cool. And you can also even block up your units by having, you can put a slow minion in front of the rest and really like chug your whole like engine along at a much slower pace, again, to figure out like the right tactical moment to strike. And then add in the heroes, which can move pretty much freely and can do all kinds of crazy stuff and plink away at enemies if they're uh, range. There's a lot of fun stuff there. And man, I mean, then you add on like the exploration of the discovery tokens, like Peter mentioned, which have these surprises. You flip them up and find out. Sometimes they help you, sometimes they hurt you, but they get you source, they get you like new abilities. You can teleport around the board with them. I mean, I just really like the tactical play here. And I mean, man, you add in the spires, which we've already mentioned, and it just becomes a very fun tactical puzzle each time you play that I really, really appreciated. Yeah, no, I agree with I agree with that completely. That is probably the best thing about the game. If you are a tactical gamer, and look, I am. I mean, I've told you guys in the past, that is one of my favorite things to do is try to tactically figure out, okay, how do I position myself to get in the right range for this and do this? Now, you have a little less control here because the minions are on rails to some degree, and a lot of times it's just a single path, so you don't really have a lot of say on it. But as you said, you're making that tactical decision at the beginning of the wave, and sometimes you realize halfway through, through, uh uh-oh, I messed that up, and now my whole line is, like, doing things that I didn't expect them to do or didn't want them to do, and so I I definitely think there's a tactical puzzle, but you do have a limited, a little bit of a limited control over it anyway. Well, and I, I honestly, at least for me, I prefer that. Like, games where every unit can move anywhere on the map, I find less interesting than something like this to put some constraints on it, because that lets kind of... It goes from being such an open-ended puzzle that there's kind of no puzzle at all to being a potentially, like, puzzle you can figure out. You can see, oh, man, how is the AI going to move? When are they going to get here? How do I hit them at that exact moment? You know what I mean? Sure, sure. And that's what it is. I mean, there's going to be a lot of puzzle to the co-op game. There's less so in the competitive game because you have a little bit less knowledge about what's coming out. People can move their units however they want, even the minions, as long as they are moving closer each time, whereas the AI literally makes a beeline and moves the closest possible way. Now, they certainly make up for that by giving them tons and tons of units. So it's not an easy puzzle to figure out, but it certainly is a puzzle... And in a good way, too, right? Like, you know where they're going to be next turn, so you can kind of plan your move to head them off at the pass, so to speak. All right, so Peter, what's your number one? So my number one is the factions. And the base game comes with four factions, and I'm sure there are more to buy online. Well, there's uh, one extra one you can purchase from Chip Theory, the Grige, that I'm hoping to purchase soon. They're, I think, kind of like a swarming insect, sort of Zergish kind of race. And then I believe there's a new Kickstarter for 2020 that's going to have, like, Sky Pirates and stuff. <laughs> I don't know a lot about it yet, but that's uh, the general sense I get. Well, that's kind of cool. Yeah, so, I mean, but even with the four factions, there's lots of content. And for someone like me, 
who is already having a hard time figuring out the different factions and learning their special abilities, I think it's probably good that there's only four factions. Now, it does limit co-op play a little bit because you're going to be using all four factions literally every time you play. It's just which ones are you using and who are you playing against. Now, they try to battle that by... (laughs) I mean, here's the other thing. Even in the very first mission in the co-op book, they kind of break the rules of the chips. So as I was saying... Every chip's got its own special abilities. Well, they even break that rule in the very first mission of the campaign of the co-op campaign book. And the spires you build are completely different than any spire you could build in the normal game. And so they do a lot of things to keep it fresh, even with four factions in the co-op book. But at the same time, by doing so, you're having to learn a lot more things. The factions are great, though. Getting back to what you were talking about earlier with the player boards, I think those are very cool. So you can use your source to upgrade your player boards, and every faction upgrades completely differently. Of course, that is more stuff that you have to take in at the beginning. Now, you're not really paying too much attention to it during the rounds, typically. It's typically upgrades that will help you either before or after the mission. Some of them will do certain things like make it when your base gets attacked that you do extra damage them or things like that. But a lot of times there's stuff that are kind of one and done, but you do have to kind of read through them all between waves. And there are four or five waves in the game. So you can end up reading that sheet several times when you first start playing. So this is definitely a game that the first couple times you play, it's going to take a lot longer. You're going to have to learn all your faction special abilities Not only your guys, but the enemies as well. Now, I will suggest online they have some downloads from the Chip Theory website. Just go to the download section, and they have every single special ability in the game on... I was going to say one sheet of paper, but it's not. It's four sheets of paper. There there are that many special abilities. But... Typically, and what I had to do, because I didn't know this was available, was look at every single player's faction sheet. So I'm pulling all four faction sheets and looking on the back of them for their special abilities. It is neat how different the factions feel, but at the same time, that comes with the cost of a a huge learning curve. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say it's huge, but (laughs) for you, I guess it was huge. Uh, For me, it was not that big of a deal. And I really appreciate it because my number one is also the factions, but for me, it's a big, big pro. I mean, this is pretty predictable. Enemy game that has, like, major uh, differences and, like, things to explore, like new decks to try out and modular elements. It's almost always going to be my number one or my number two just because I love that stuff. But, yeah, the factions have very different units, uh, hugely different base upgrades, different spires. I I will say, I I don't know if maybe Peter's experience was a little bit different because of this, but I do recommend that the first times you're playing, you either play competitive, like probably two-player, just to make it a little bit straightforward for yourself, or you play solo instead of co-op. Because, uh, especially like the solo, like I started out by playing solo. And the nice thing is they have you control one faction going through multiple scenarios. And each scenario is against a different enemy faction. So it's almost, I mean, it's not a tutorial. It's not as basic as that. The scenarios are still challenging and have you do fun stuff. But it feels in a way almost like they are slowly teaching you the factions. So by the time that I played through like the Brawnen campaign, which is four scenarios, I had seen every other faction and I had a sense of what their special powers were, but I only had to look at the Brawnen powers the first scenario and then I pretty much had them. So then I only had like one new faction to learn each time. So I do recommend if you have the time to kind of invest before you try it co-op or try like a three or four player competitive game that you do that because that should cut down on how overwhelming uh, it might feel. Now, so you didn't have to look up special powers in the middle of your games at all? 
Oh, I mean, not, I mean, definitely not for my faction. Uh, now, when I was playing uh, co-op and I was trying to help out the other person, then yes. Because <laughs> I, I didn't know two factions perfectly. But that, that's usually when I was trying out, like, new factions. Like, I would seek out the ones I hadn't played much. But no, like, even right now, if I sat down and played, like, definitely... The, the Brawn and the most straightforward. I certainly recommend that for the first faction for anybody. But uh, for the Brawn in, probably... I mean, I think for all four factions, I would be able to know at a glance what all their powers are right now like without studying and with having played in several weeks yeah i don't know it's a lot for me and like i said it's four different pages of special rules i I actually equate this a lot and i'll start getting into my final thoughts here i equate this a lot to a miniatures game and a miniature skirmish game to be precise because they always have like a lot of different units and they all have special abilities if you like that kind of thing where every unit is unique then I think you'll really like it. And I did like the tactical combat, and I do like the game a lot. It's not going to be at the top of my list at the end of the year, but certainly if somebody brought it over, especially if Mike brought it over, knowing the factions as well as he does, I would have a lot more fun playing if I could just play it. But for me, I'm reviewing it as if I'm the person running the game, I'm the person buying the game, and so for me, it's going to knock it down a couple pegs because of that. And even in the learning curve itself, I think that you can miss things. And I think even on your seventh or eighth play, you can miss little things. Like I was playing with my son the other day, and I kept trying to shoot these guys with the tower. But they were incorporeal, which meant not just one thing, but three things. It meant they couldn't be hit from range. It meant they could walk through other units, and it means they steal source when they walk through other units. So... I kept thinking, okay, I know they can walk through units, they're incorporeal, but I forgot, I kept forgetting about the range thing where you couldn't hit them from range. I'm like, oh, I shoot these guys, and they're like, no, you can't do that. And so just stuff like that, there's a lot of keywords, and so for me, it knocks it down a little bit, but it was fun to play, and I did enjoy playing it. I think I would enjoy it cooperatively more than I enjoyed it competitively because it is more puzzly and less stressful. I think I would be more stressed out trying to figure out my opponent's special abilities when I'm trying to beat them in a competitive head-to-head game. I think for me, cooperatively, you know, if you mess up in a cooperative game, I don't mind as much. And that uh, that's a funny segue into my final thoughts because I don't play tactical miniatures games almost at all. And Peter, you play them quite a lot. And I don't like tactical, like, movement games as much as you do. But I will say I, I tend to do better with, like, fiddly games, like Sentinels of the Multiverse, Street Masters, and any of the modular deck system games. Like, games where there's a lot of powers and a lot of, like, effects going on at once don't tend to tax my brain as badly. <laughs> they don't, like, kind of impact my experience as much. Sure. So, yeah, th- this one is pretty much a full recommend for me. I-, I clearly like it more than you, Peter. And this was already in... It showed up in the top solo uh, list in the podcast we did uh, last week. I think on both Liz and my list, we had Cloudspire fairly high. So we both enjoyed it a lot for solo play. I I really like this one. This is one of my top games of 2019. But I I am saying that it is one of my top games of 2019 as a solo and co-op and competitive game. I am certainly going to play this game with the full gamut of options available to me. If you are buying this just for solo play, I think you can still get all the value you need out of it, even though it is really expensive. I mean, you're paying for really nice components, so if those don't matter to you and you're just like paying for content, then maybe, I don't know if it'll be justified for the solo price then. I don't know. It's it's a lot of content. There's 16 missions in there, and I think you'll get at least 20 or 30 plays out of it. Well, and also, I mean, I I did play a co-op scenario once solo, so I think it's it's really 24 missions if you're playing solo. 
Yeah, I mean, as long as you're as long as you're willing to control four factions, yeah. Absolutely. Well, yes, yes. You definitely did have a certain kind of uh, gameplay bent to do that. So, so the, the couple of caveats I'll give. Uh, first of all, if you don't like kind of dealing with stuff and learning a lot of uh, rules and enemy powers, uh, you know, maybe watch out for this game. Uh, also, Peter's right. E- even with how much I played, I was missing rules. Like Peter pointed out, hey, dude, you did this wrong. You did that wrong. Uh, so if that's going to bother you a lot, like it didn't bother me. I'm like, oh, whatever. Oh, I played that wrong. Okay, I'll get it right next time. Like, it's not a big deal. But if, if that bothers you and you're like, I'm not playing the rules correctly. This is totally invalid. I have to p- start all over again. Then, you know, that could certainly be frustrating here because there are a lot of little like rules to learn and things you could miss. And I will say, if you're buying this just for co-op, I think at that point, it's not a great value. Like, you need to be playing this solo or competitive. Co-op, you only have eight scenarios. It is the toughest way to learn the game. It's the most stuff to manage in the game because it's, uh, you know, two players running four uh, factions. So one's going to be the longest, too, because absolutely. And and actually, (laughs) the interesting thing is the solo scenarios are one offs. Like, yes, you can play four of them in the row and they have sort of a narrative connection and it's all the same uh, force. But they are one off scenarios like one doesn't affect the next one. But the co-op scenarios are all uh, paired scenarios. So technically, you're supposed to play the first one and that'll have effects on the second one, which is cool. But each of the scenarios is already longer than either competitive or solo tends to be. And then you're supposed to play two of them at once. So I would say out of the three, co-op is probably the uh, the weakest, and this is the one-stop co-op shop. So if you just want it for co-op, I'm not sure it's a strong recommend here. But if you're willing to kind of get over all the rules, if you like tactical play, and if you think you might play solo and or competitive, then I think this one is awesome. I, it's a big recommend for me. Yeah, I'll say my review was based on co-op. If it was based on solo, it would it would definitely move up several notches for me. Because only controlling one faction and having one AI faction at a time definitely takes away a lot of my cons for the game. But it's still going to take a, a little while to get into, even playing it that way. But I would highly recommend, as Mike said, if you are going to play a co-op, Try to play it solo first, or just block off the evening because it's gonna be it's gonna be pretty long. It'll probably be three to five hours your first time playing if you've never played before and you're trying to play co-op. Yeah, yeah. I mean, usually I would say I play faster than that, but that sounds right on. <laughs> All right, so there's our review for Cloudspire. Pretty positive, but with some hesitation if you don't like a lot of special powers. Yeah, like this is this is the kind of game that could be amazing for somebody. Like, could be their top game of the year. Or it could be a total bust. I agree with that. You know, like, you really got to know what kind of gamer you are and see which of our points hit you in certain ways. And that'll really determine whether this is a game for you. Yeah, I mean, even with all the negative I said, I still wanted to play it. And my son loved it. And he wanted to keep playing it. So it's certainly a game we're going to play again. But at the same time, I still have reservations and I don't want anybody coming in and trying to play it for the first time thinking they're going to sit down, bust open the rule book and play it in five minutes. It's definitely not that kind of game. So uh, with that being said, though, I know we're going to get it out at least a couple of times throughout the course of the year. Yeah. And I mean, I'm this is the kind of game that I really enjoy watching. That's not even necessarily true. I really enjoy this game because <laughs> it's not, you know, I don't necessarily buy like lots of tactical games with different armies and stuff. But my plan is to pick up the Grige. I'm probably going to get whatever the uh, new Kickstarter is. So I don't know if I'll buy everything Cloudspire forever. But I want, you know, a few more factions, a few more scenarios. I'm going to definitely invest more in this one. All right. So if you were a Chip Theory fan, and I know you didn't play... Wait, you did play Hoplomachus, right? Yeah, the only one I have not played are, like, their smaller releases. Like, they have a game called Triplock that I've never played. But I've played all of their big three main releases. 
So where would this fall? Is this definitely number one for you? Uh, you know, Liz and I discussed this in the solo episode. This is definitely number one with what I've played. But I really, really liked Hoplomachus. And the thing is, I only played the small, like, solo set. And Liz pointed out that the solo there is very limited. Like, it's only scenario-based. And I didn't like those scenarios as much as these because it's, like, the same three scenarios over and over again, just with variations. So she pointed out if I had gotten the other sets, which let you play, like, really crazy solo with, like, these titans and all this, like, other stuff, then that might push it to my number one. But, yeah, just having played only one set of Hoplo, I'm going with uh, Cloud Surprise, my number one, Hoplo, number two. And then I I like, uh, what's the other one even called? Too Many Bones. Yes, I I like Too Many Bones, markedly less than the others. Like, I had big problems with that one, do not have the same problems with either. I I think Hoplo and Cloud Spire are both really awesome designs. Could be some things to put you off, but I have a lot to like here. Yeah, you know, it's funny. The one I've played the least is Hoplomachus. That is the one I am most interested to play again, because I don't remember the fiddliness in that. But, of course, I never played it solo or co-op either. And I don't even know if they have co-op in that. They, they do in the sets that I didn't have. <laughs> okay, so that might be something to look at in the future, because that is the one I felt like it was less fiddly. I don't know why. Do you control, like, the same unit the whole time, or do you control less units? The big thing with Hoplo, at least in what we play, because, again, I think it's a bigger arena in the other modes, is that you have a ton of guys to draft from, so it could be intimidating when you're drafting, but they do repeat powers more often. It's not like every unit has unique things about them. You have a lot of units that have no keywords or have the same keywords. But also, once you're in the arena, you might only have, like, three guys or four guys under your control. So it's a very limited thing, and they're the exact same four guys the entire time. You're not bringing in more, like, every round. So Cloudspire is certainly a much grander scope, much more complex game in terms of the battles you're doing. Hoplo is more focused, I mean, which makes sense. It's arena combat, like, just to the death, quick, like, bloody fights. Sure, and I think maybe the simplest of them was Too Many Bones. I remember liking that game the first several times I played. I mean, it was really until we maybe figured out, maybe just group thinked it, that there is best paths to create each thing. But I did enjoy that game the first couple times I played it, too. So these would be really hard to categorize for me. I think they are all going to have people that like them specifically. Yeah, I think Hoplo and... Cloudspire go together better in my mind. Sure. Like, if you like one, I think you're more likely to like the other. Too Many Bones is much more of, like, an event. Like, there is a little bit of tactical combat, but it's very limited in terms of movement and stuff compared to these. Sure. Uh, That one's much more about, like, the adventuring and the dice and all that. Yeah, no, I totally agree. So there you go. A little bit of a review of Hoplomachus and Too Many Bones. You can hear our full thoughts on one of our earliest episodes. Yeah, and Hoplo, unfortunately, it seems like Chip Theory is pretty much sold out of the Hoplo line and, from what I've heard, does not have any plans to reprint it again. So I've been trying to track down, like, used copies, but people <laughs> people are holding on to them very tightly. So I would love to play the uh, co-op mode of Hoplo and then review it at some point, but uh, might not happen until I, like, visit Liz Davidson or somebody else that owns it. Yeah, it's interesting because the solo community really seems to love Hoplomachus, so I'm surprised it doesn't have more love from Chip Theory games. Well, I think it had love for quite a long time. I just think they kind of sold all the ones they could, and they don't know if there is renewed interest with so many new games having come out since then. Sure. No, that makes sense. I mean, that's the case with the whole market. I guess we could have a whole podcast just on that topic. But instead, we're going to have a design discussion, (laughs) a little segue there, into uh, games that try to include competitive Co-op and solo. And we already mentioned a couple here, Cloudspire and Hoplo, depending on what set you have. Uh, both fit into that. 
And uh, we can look at a lot of other games. Uh, Root, I was thinking, with the uh, Better Bot expansion that's coming. That has a uh, cooperative and competitive and solo. And uh, a lot of these, uh, I see like a lot of crawlers and adventure games. I mean, this is one of the things we talk about a lot on the Slack. We will see a game on Kickstarter. We'll start discussing it. And somebody will say, whoa, solo, co-op, and competitive. <laughs> and I know what my first thoughts are when I see that on a Kickstarter game. But what do you think when you see that on a game, Peter? Yeah, no, I think it's immediate red flag. It's like, okay, where did they put their resources? What was this originally? And I mean, the one thing in the positive side, I will say for Cloudspire, I think the way you look at it, you would say, well, this was originally a competitive game and they clearly tacked on solo and co-op. But at the same time, solo and co-op each have these huge giant books. So they clearly put a lot more time into solo and co-op. That is not something they could have just tacked on. That is something that was clearly in their mind from early on, or they did a lot of development work on. But normally when I see them, I'm like, okay, what is this game really? And then which part of it is tacked on? Yeah, and it's it's funny that I used to see a lot of value in that kind of stuff. A great example, like early on in my hobby gaming, I was uh, playing Reiner Knizia's Lord of the Rings that Colin did a playthrough of the channel uh, last year. And that's fully co-op. And then they came out with this Sauron expansion that let one person play as Sauron and turn it into a one versus many game. And I was like, in my head, I was like, oh man, that's so amazing. Now we can play it totally differently and it has so much more value. <laughs> and we played it and it was like terrible. And nobody wanted to be Sauron. And we were like, oh, this sucks. Let's get back to the co-op version. Well, I think Pandemic the Cure is very similar, or not the Cure, whatever the one they added, the, the bioterrorist or whatever. Yeah, I don't think a lot of people play that way. Yes. <laughs> so I, I think... In general, I guess companies think they're getting value by doing this, but I think a lot of the time, yeah, at least for me, it feels like a tacked-on thing that actually reduces the value of the game because I'm like, well, they could have made the co-op better or they could have given me more co-op, but instead they built this other thing in there. <laughs> and it just kind of, yeah, like you said, is a red flag immediately. Well, it might be funny because it might be an outdated perception too, similar to the perception that all games with IPs on them are terrible. Well, we've proved that wrong over the years. Maybe it is the kind of thing where it's a perception more than reality because look at Descent and Imperial Assault, for example. Those games weren't designed as co-op games, but we were super excited when the co-op mode came out, and we really like what they did with the co-op mode. Same with Mansions of Madness, right? The original one was a one-versus-many game, and then when they came out with second edition, they did away with that and did it as an app. Now, that one, I guess, is a little bit different because it was completely redesigned from the ground up to be done just with the app. So that I might be, you know, talking out of the side of my mouth on that one. Wait, I, I would disagree with you strongly in what you just said, because I find Descent to an extent, but Imperial Assault majorly to be a lesser experience in co-op because of how awkward and sort of grafted on the AI feels and how, like, they're trying to make these cards work, but, like, the cards are different and some powers apply and some powers don't. Talk about fiddliness. That's one that does bother me because to see what the powers are and aren't, you have to actually, like, click into the app and find that, like, unit and see what they say to use and not to use. That's an example of where this can be bad, where you're trying to add co-op when the game didn't originally support it and it doesn't quite work right. Compare that to Mansions of Madness 2nd Edition, which is built from the ground up to be co-op, and I find that to be a much more streamlined and smooth experience that works really, really well. So I think, especially for Imperial Assault, not as much Descent because it's a simpler game. Well, I was about to say Descent, I really liked, and I think the app was very smooth. In fact, I was about to get rid of it before it got, came up with the co-op mode. 
Yeah, I found Imperial Assault to be the really frustrating one, and uh, it was not too easy. Like, even when I play it now, I, I want to play it more, but I'm like, ah, do I really want to play it more? <laughs> well, they did that cinematic thing where they're trying to have them run out, shoot you, and then run behind cover. And while it sounds cool in theory, like, just gameplay never works out with stuff like that. Now, see if you agree with this statement, Peter. I think that generally in my experience... I think it's easier to go from co-op or solo to start and then do a competitive edition than it is the other way around. Because I think the toughest part of co-op design, or one of the toughest parts, is getting the balance of difficulty correct and also getting an interesting AI that interacts with the players in a meaningful way. And I think to try to build that from nothing is a much more challenging task in a lot of ways than like taking a game that already works when you go against the AI and just having you smash into each other instead. I don't know if I agree with that or not because I've never we've never successfully gone either way with it. And so we have tried to make a competitive game into a co-op game and it turned out okay, but it wasn't up to our standards, so we kind of put it on the shelf for now. So with that being said, I know it is very hard to go from competitive to co-op, especially in the genre we were trying to do. I don't know, because the problem is, with co-ops, I don't mind as much internal balance issues. Like, if something's a little bit more powerful than something else, I'm not going to worry about it too much. Then you feel really cool when you get that thing. And that just doesn't work out for competitive play normally, because then somebody's becoming way more powerful by the flip of a card, or the roll of a dice, or whatever else. I mean, I think that's my biggest problem, and that's the thing that always puts me on edge when I see co-op and competitive is they have to be balanced differently. And I almost feel like you want a little wiggle room in cooperative game with the balance between characters because you want to be able to say you won with a really hard character or you want to have that excitement of really good flips and really bad flips. And it does the exact opposite in competitive games. It makes you feel like they were too random. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And it is a different balance. I mean, I, I prefer my co-op games to be fairly closely balanced, I think, more than you kind of worry about. But, yeah, it can be really frustrating, especially, we say this with co-op games, but if they don't advertise it. Like, if I know that I'm playing with the harder guy, I'm thinking of, uh, you know, Blood Bowl competitive. It's like, at least in the old version, you know, halflings are terrible. And, uh, you know, like, lizard men or Skaven are pretty strong. So if I'm playing with, like, my son, I can give him the strong one and give myself the weak one. But yeah, if they just say, hey, all these characters are balanced, you can play them with co-op or competitive, and one is twice as strong as everybody else, not going to be too satisfying of an experience when you are playing and discovering that for yourself and realizing, oh, I can't ever use this person in a uh, you know well-matched uh, game. I have to use them in like these weird uh, handicap games. Well, and Keyforge has taught me, and I agree, and maybe this is part of the reason I like Keyforge so much, is the decks are differently balanced. But it is a fun game, whether you're playing with really powerful decks, really medium decks, or really bad decks, as long as you're playing against the same tier. And like you said earlier, you can use it as a handicapping system as well. Um, But they also have internal balancing too. So I guess there is a way to do it where even if the power level is different between the characters, for competitive, you could throw in some kind of a handicapping system to make it that even if you get a worse faction, maybe you start with three extra gold or something like that, depending on the type of game it is. I do think it's much easier to add on solo to competitive 
And we've certainly seen this a lot with the explosion of kind of solo variants and things. I mean, people will take a game that's fully competitive and just <laughs> on their own, like posting on Board Game Geek, post like a variant that works very well. Like I'm thinking uh, Outer Rim, the Star Wars smuggling game. There was an official solo mode that worked fine, but pretty quickly people had like this much more intricate and kind of more nuanced by character solo design up there that really kind of upped the enjoyment of the solo game for that one. But I think it's a lot tougher to create a co-op experience because if you're doing just a solo automa kind of experience, it's still basically the same as a head-to-head. So all you need to do is figure out a way to control what the AI chooses to do. And the more simple the game is or the more straightforward the strategy is, the easier that is to do, I think. But then for like co-op, you're really changing the makeup of the game. You know, whereas like it was free-for-all, now it is in a way team-based, you know, like... If you consider it uh, like a competitive game becoming a co-op game is often going to be a team game. It's either two versus one or sometimes two versus two. So I think it's a tougher kind of nut to crack a lot of the time. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And part of that is, you know, you could just say, hey, solo is you versus one bot. So co-op could be two of you versus one bot. But the question comes in is where is the co-op nature of the game? Because I feel like sometimes people make solo games, try to be played cooperatively, and there's just no co-op nature to them. Everybody can do their own thing. We were playing a game last night, the zombie game, and I really liked it, but that's how I felt. I felt like it was a solo game, and we could do minor things to help each other, but not really. It's really both of us playing a solo game next to each other, and so I feel like that would be the problem with taking a design that's competitive, doing a solo mode, and then trying to tweak it out to cooperative. I, I guess it's two degrees of separation there. And and maybe that's why it is hard to go from competitive to cooperative, because not only do you have to figure out how to make an AI work, but then you have to figure out how to make cooperation work as well. And going in reverse, you've got a game that's cooperative and you're meant to be helping each other. And then you take away all the helping each other. And so the interaction can get kind of weird with that as well. Well, I guess that gets into whether you're like calling it true solo or whatever or not. Because a lot of games that are cooperative and go down to solo will just be like, oh, control two characters. <laughs> sure. You know, and it's solo or not, depending on your definitions. I'd still call it solo if you're playing by yourself. But yeah, going backwards from cooperative to solo, much easier. Going from solo to cooperative, much tougher. And yeah, from competitive to solo and cooperative, I think even more challenging than that. Yeah, no, I totally agree. So what are some of the benefits? Why would somebody want to do this? I mean, I guess it does. It opens up the play possibilities. Now, we we are in a nice little <laughs> space among ourselves where we can almost always play cooperative games and be happy with that with our families or with each other. So I don't know that if I, I – we still play competitive games, but if all of the competitive games have disappeared from my shelf and, like, some divine power said you cannot play competitive anymore – I would not be too sad about it. But for other people, I think there is a value judgment there. Like, my friends will only play competitive. I can play this game, but oh, I can also play it solo. Or when uh, my son, who hates losing, wants to play, I can play it cooperative. So that has to be one big benefit. Well, I think another big benefit is that as long as they don't go too far askew with the rules and add in 50 million things, you already know the system. So you've got a game that you know how to play, you know you enjoy it, And so you can introduce it to other people. Again, whether that be cooperatively or competitively, it gives you options of different ways to play with the game that you already bought. And so adds value. Now, 
That is only if the game plays similarly. And we played some of these, including Cloudspire, I'd say, where they make so many changes to the rules that you feel like it's a completely different game. And that, I mean, that can, again, increase the perception of value, but then you do lose that benefit. Because I also think of games that are competitive and solo and co-op. The solo and co-op is often a nice way to learn the game or to teach it to people where there's not as much kind of pressure externally from the other players. And then you can, like, work your way into competitive play and you'll all be kind of more comfortable with the system. But yeah, you're right. If, if everything is totally different, then that does not help you at all. And I mean, Cloudspire does teach you a lot of the basics of the game. Don't get me wrong. Just the AI acts in a way that players wouldn't act. And they do break the rules sometimes with the way the game works. And it's fine because it's cooperative. So breaking the rules isn't the worst thing in the world. Like they have spires that are just ridiculously huge. And you have to learn how to deal with those even though you'd never have to do that in a competitive game. So that's what I'm talking about, the game being different. Yeah, and that does speak to one of kind of the key things that could make it easier, is that if your game is such that you can just have the AI be another player, it's simpler, whereas, I guess this is kind of getting to that whole transforming the game idea, if the AI becomes something else entirely that can do things that players can never do, that's uh, much more challenging. Like, I'm thinking Cerebria is basically a team-based game, however you play. You can control your team solo, you can control your team cooperatively, but you're playing the same basic game always, and the AI is just controlling these, uh, you know, opposing units that can do things a little bit differently, but in general play the exact same cards you'd be playing and take the exact same actions you'd be playing. Whereas uh, I know a game that I think just delivered, and I think Berndt is doing a uh, video on fairly soon is uh it's called arena or maybe Khan was going to do it actually but uh it's called arena and like the key game the way the game was sold was a competitive like arena combat sort of in a dungeon where you like you build your little team of adventurers and go off fighting each other but then it's like this very apparently robust campaign system where they have, like a whole narrative and uh you like go through a story and you level up and like none of that is in the competitive and that's very interesting to me the game we're designing right now spare parts is the same thing but we started with the campaign and the leveling up and all the stuff that seems way more complicated, and then we are working on adding in a competitive arena mode. That seems like a much more natural progression to me, but the idea of like having an arena combat game and just being like, hey, by the way, here's a huge booklet of uh, campaign system, and here's a leveling up system that doesn't exist otherwise, that, uh, <laughs> that like direction of design kind of uh, surprises me and seems like it would be very tough to achieve. Well, and that's something to be said, because I didn't even think about spare parts that way. But yeah, we do have a competitive mode in there, and we do have, obviously, cooperative. That's the way it's going to be played. And again, it's a cooperative game that can very easily be played solo as well. So I guess we are going to have all three things in that game. What we did, though, is we made a very different game. And the way I'm thinking about it anyway, it'll probably be released separately as an expansion for adding in competitive And while it has the same basic structure, it really plays very differently, and it is a different experience. So, yeah, and I mean, I guess that's the way Cloudspire is too, right? I mean, they put a lot of work into those books. Like I said, you could tell. They are many, many, many pages. And so I guess I will be less scared when that much effort and energy is put into making sure the solo or cooperative mode exists and is fun to play. But here's the challenge with Kickstarters. How can you tell? Because a lot of times they don't give you a lot of information. Sure. A great example, it'll probably already be done by the time this episode airs or close to done. But Monolith did a seven-day super short Kickstarter 
for a bunch. They're like it's for their Conan and Batman miniature line. We like the Conan game. We haven't played Batman, but um, it's like they're changing the direction of it. And it's like a whole new thing, but you can use your old miniatures. It's it's very uh, <laughs> confusing. It's a very complicated Kickstarter page. But one of the things on there is like a book that's like, hey, now you can finally play Conan co-op. And I was like, heck yeah, man, I love Conan. I want to play Conan co-op. And <laughs> from what I saw, like zero previews, no rule book, no video. So, and you know, it's like a $20 add-on with like these hundreds of dollars of miniatures and competitive play like stuff. And I just have to wonder, ah, geez, like how well balanced is this? How well tested? Do the scenarios work? Have they even made the scenarios yet? Or they just like, we'll have co-op. We don't know what it is yet either, but it'll exist. <laughs> so yeah, it's hard to tell what's going to be a cloud spire and what's going to be something that's kind of tacked on. Yeah, no, no, I hear what you're saying. So, yeah, I mean, I guess that is the challenge of creating something that has multiple modes is you don't know how much work energy. I mean, that's true of anything on Kickstarter, though. You don't know how much time is put in. I guess if you've got a gameplay video, you can at least make a judgment call. But, yeah, without a rule book, without gameplay video, it's really hard to tell when you're buying stuff on Kickstarter what you're getting. So with all that said, sometimes it can be great. Sometimes it could be lousy. I guess in a way it's just like any other game. Although I would lean toward if they have everything in there, it's slightly more likely to not be good. <laughs> At least for parts of it. Like the solo might be amazing, but everything else might be terrible or uh, some other combination thereof. Well, yeah, like for Cloudspire, for example, Jason hated the cooperative game, but he loved the solo and the competitive game. So I think you have more of a chance of finding an audience. I guess if you make all three, maybe somebody's going to like one thing over another, but you also have a chance, more of a chance of failing because I, I've said this a hundred times, the less time you put into any one of those designs, then the more chance you're going to have, you know, if you're spending your time working on all three at once, all of them are likely to be lower quality than if you had just spent all that time working on one of the modes. And I think that can almost give your knit game a worse reputation if you sort of alienate and let down certain segments of the population, like if you really push, hey, this will have a solo mode, this will have a solo mode, and all these solo gamers buy your game, and then go online and just rip it apart for how terrible the solo is and how poorly thought out, I think that's going to bleed over to the opinion of the game overall, you know? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you, you piss off one group of people. You know, at BGG, they don't have ratings based on the mode. It's an overall rating. So if you disappoint people on any of the modes, if that's the one they were excited about, then you're more likely to damage your reputation rather than doing the opposite, which is making sure that you have one game that plays really well and that's the way it should be played. Yeah, it's definitely a gamble. And I'd say for all those designers out there, I would stick with just competitive with a solo variant or cooperative with a solo variant and maybe not so much competitive and cooperative <laughs> at the same time, unless you're really confident. Sure. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this week. Thanks for joining us again, and we'll see you in a couple weeks with another Top 5 list. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to another episode of the One Stop Co-op Shop podcast. Please check out our YouTube channel at One Stop Co-op Shop. If you want to reach out to us, the best place to talk to us all is on the Slack. See the show notes for details. Also, you can support us on Patreon check out patreon.com slash one stop. Thanks for listening and we'll see you all next week with another top five list. Stupid phone. <laughs> Wait, was that just Siri that kicked in? 
and he wanted to keep playing it. So it's not like it's a game we're never going to play a game. It's it's not a game we're going to play a game. <laughs> hey, Mike. Yeah? I miss Colin. Oh, well, dude, he sends you so many messages. You should feel very loved. Oh, I just got another email from him. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs>